Should pharmacists be very engaged in continuous educational programs dealing with AI in healthcare? I, I certainly think that um, AI will be. So can you go back in time and share with us how your career got started after graduation? I've certainly had that. Where, in your opinion, do you see the pharmacists role going in the next 10 years? Um, well, I think while our core, a core competency of the pharmacist will always be. Do you see some roles that are going to be less and less needed and fading away in the coming years? I'm, I'm not sure. Do you see any evolutions of the job market demand and in which direction? Well, I think the evolution will happen. Back then, what kind of uh, challenges you faced, especially when advocating for the expansion of the pharmacist role? Yes, Hamza. Well, there are. For those people who are inspired by your journey in leading this change, what would you say to them? Paul Sinclair, president of the FIP, International Pharmaceutical Federation, an organization representing over 4 million pharmacists pharmaceutical scientists and educators worldwide. He is also a community pharmacy owner for over 30 years and he was the lead negotiator for the sixth community pharmacy agreement, a $17 billion public-private partnership in Australia. An exciting interview is awaiting you as we discuss his career, artificial intelligence, advocating for the expansion of the pharmacist role his favorite career advice, and much, much more. You're now listening to Apothic Career Talk, a podcast aiming to widen your career perspectives and enable you to take informed career decisions by leveraging pharmacy role models experiences. I hope you enjoy and subscribe. Welcome to a new episode of Apothic Career Talk podcast. Today, I'm joined by Mr. Paul Sinclair, the president of the International Pharmaceutical Federation, FIP. For those of you who don't know Mr. Paul Sinclair yet, Paul Sinclair was elected president of the International Pharmaceutical Federation, FIP, in 2022, beginning a four-year term in September 2023. Before that, he was the chairman of FIP's Board of Pharmaceutical Practice and president of FIP's Community Pharmacy Section. Mr. Sinclair is a community pharmacist from Sydney, Australia. For over 30 years, he was also a community pharmacy owner. He has held a number of professional leadership positions in his home country, including as chair of several committees and working groups at the Pharmacy Council of New South Wales. President of the Pharmacy Guild of Australia, New South Wales branch, and National Vice President of the Pharmacy Guild of Australia, and Chair of the Australian Association of Consultant Pharmacists. He is a strong advocate for the expansion of scope of practice for pharmacists and the provision of professional services delivered via community pharmacies. Mr. Sinclair has served on the board of a number of non-profit organizations. He was a former councillor and the mayor of Campbelltown City Council. In 2019, he was made a member of the Order of Australia in Australia Day Honours List. Welcome to Apothecary Career Talk, Mr. Paul. Thank you, Hamza. It's very nice to be with you. 
My pleasure. Pleasure having you with us. You've had a long journey within community pharmacy, within nonprofit organizations, within regulatory bodies, both in Australia and worldwide. So can you go back in time and share with us how your career got started after graduation? I certainly have, sir. Um, I, I was very fortunate. I had, a, um, I had a, a long introduction to pharmacy. My father was a community pharmacist in a small country town in rural New South Wales. So I grew up in and around community pharmacy. Um, and so I saw firsthand uh, the involvement that my father had with the local community, the involvement he had with his profession. Um, and when I finished um, my secondary schooling, um, I had the opportunity to go to university and study pharmacy. Uh, so I was, um, I was very um, privileged to be able to do that. And it was almost a natural progression for me uh, from my school days through to um, training for uh, my profession. Um, I was fortunate that my father was a very strong mentor for me. Um, he was a very successful small business person, um, and he instilled in me, I think, um, some very strong principles of um, of uh, working with people and working for people. Uh, and um, he uh, he shone the way for me in um, in many ways. Um, after uh, in, in involvement uh, for more than ten years with local government, um, I uh, got involved with uh, the Pharmacy Guild of Australia, which is the um, owners' organisation the Community Owners Organisation of Pharmacies um, in Australia. Um, it's a very strong um, advocacy body and negotiates with the federal government every five years for a community pharmacy agreement, which is the supply and remuneration agreement, the commercial agreement between community pharmacy and the government for provision of national health medications in Australia. Uh, so that gave me a very strong insight into advocacy, dealing with bureaucrats and dealing with politicians. Um, and I also was president of the New South Wales branch of the Pharmacy Guild for a number of years. And when my time with the Guild finished, I, um, I then was very fortunate um, to be introduced to FIP um, and my roles at F FIP commenced um, some 13 or 14 years ago uh, and I have been strongly engaged with them ever since. That's a great, great start of a career especially since you were introduced by your father. I believe that played a major role in instilling the leadership personality within you. And that's what uh, led you to the professional organizations, to advocacy, to uh, advocating for the expanding role of pharmacists. So back then, when you first joined the local pharmacy organizations, what was your first role in those organizations? My, my first role, I was elected to the um, Pharmacy Guild New South Wales branch um, as a committee person, uh, and then I was um, I spent um, it's almost like a traineeship in um, in uh, um, advocacy and uh, and professional organisations, uh, and um, I was very fortunate there to have a couple of senior mentors um, who took me under their wing and um, and uh, developed. Uh, a number of skills which stood me in very good stead um, in the following years. Uh, the Guild is a very dynamic organisation in Australia. It advocates very strongly on behalf of the 5,400 community pharmacies uh, that represent private infrastructure, which is leveraged by the government 
to provide pharmaceutical benefits to the entire Australian population. It's a unique arrangement. It's what we refer to as a public-private partnership, where the government leverages private infrastructure to deliver a public benefit, and it's paid for by public monies. Uh, that has been uh, the, the the cornerstone of the um, pharmaceutical benefit scheme in Australia for the last 50 years, um, and it has worked exceptionally well, uh, despite all the pressures that have come with uh, with price disclosure, uh, with uh, reducing drug prices, drug shortages, etc. Um, so that um, the, the Guild in the first instance uh, was a great training ground for me. Um, I got to meet um, uh, most of my contemporaries um, in the uh, firstly in the uh, in the local New South Wales uh, pharmacy marketplace uh, because most uh, pharmacists, not all, but most in those days, were members of the Pharmacy Guild. Uh, so it was a great uh, vehicle for networking. Um, growing professional networks um, and bringing the uh, profession uh, and the owners of the pharmacies within that profession uh, into a very um, close uh, network of, um, of like-minded professionals. Great, great. So within the, the Pharmacy Guild of Australia back then, I, I think you've joined it back in the 90s. That was uh, your beginnings in, within the guide. Correct. It was a little later than that. Um, I, I've been a, I have been a member of the Pharmacy Guild since I opened my first pharmacy in 1981. Um, and uh, then I got heavily involved with the Guild in the early 2000s uh, and, uh, and then transitioned to, I was elected um, to the National Guild, which is the overarching organisation uh, which manages um, the state branches of the Guild in every state and territory. Uh, and it was at the national level um, that I chaired a couple of the uh, the uh, the larger committees, in particular the Health Economics Committee, which was the negotiating committee for the uh, community pharmacy agreements. Um, and in 2014-15, uh, um, I uh, I chaired the um, the six community pharmacy agreement, which I was the lead negotiator for. And that was a $17 billion commercial arrangement between the Pharmacy Guild of Australia uh, and the uh, federal government. So it was a, um, there was a lot at stake. Um, the, uh, the livelihoods and welfare of um, thousands of employees and thousands of uh, pharmacists um, is effectively determined by the success of that negotiation. Um, and we were able to get some very good outcomes for our profession. Perfect. So, uh, with, with this, with these agreements, with those years in the Pharmacy Guild of Australia, uh, within your implication, how, how did you see the, the pharmacy landscape evolve in Australia and what's, what key role the guild played in it? Especially since you mentioned this agreement that, that had the stake of $17 billion and thousands of employees. Yes, it, it was a very interesting time. Uh, because uh, we had seen in early agreements, earlier agreements, uh, the commencement of professional service delivery um, by a community pharmacy and the remuneration of those programs by the community pharmacy agreement. They started out with medication reviews uh, done essentially in um, nursing homes and aged care facilities, and they expanded to home medication reviews, meds checks, which were designed to help improve the health literacy of our patients by doing a, uh, 
a, a, a mini medicine review in the pharmacy with the patient. Um, it included um, also being paid for hacking of medicines into dose set forms or, or Webster packs, as we call them. It included uh, being paid for stage supply, uh, where people who might uh, be prescribed benzodiazepines, for instance, um, were required to come into the pharmacy every day or every second day and have doses provided rather than providing them with a bulk supply of um, of, uh, of dangerous medications, particularly those who were uh, perhaps dealing with a um, an addiction um, or were at risk from an overdose. So there are a number of, um, of programs that were initiated, um, and that was the start of the, the impetus um, that um, has led us towards a rapid expansion of practice within community pharmacy in Australia. Um, and uh, during the latter part of uh, my time at the Guild, we championed pharmacist vaccination at the state level, um, and uh, that was successful. Uh, we, we had trials for influenza vaccine, uh, which were run in every state. They were transitioned then into full influenza vaccine uh, uh, campaigns and clinics that were done within community pharmacy, and that laid the platform for a network of vaccinators when COVID arrived for government to leverage those skills in community pharmacists to then allow pharmacists to provide COVID vaccines to the population when uh, uh, vaccination targets through hospitals, doctors and vaccination clinics uh, were not meeting the required targets set by the government. So the early work in those, in those early agreements uh, to establish professional programs within community pharmacy, as well as being remunerated for supply of pharmaceutical uh, benefits or pharmaceutical tablets and um, and medicines. Um, those early programs laid the platform for a credible basis for pharmacists to do more in uh, professional programs, to the point where we now have prescribing trials uh, in most states and territories, and we look forward to, uh, in the next 12 months, seeing um, a number of minor ailments being able to be dealt with by um, pharmacists who will be able to prescribe, uh, to diagnose, prescribe, um, and then dispense medicines from a limited formulary to uh, treat those uh, particular conditions, uh, which will take enormous pressure of general practice um, uh, surgeries and uh, emergency uh, departments in hospitals. So I can imagine this has been a, a great milestone in shaping the current uh, pharmacy landscape in Australia. Uh, but back then, it certainly wasn't an easy step forward. Resistance to this change has certainly been part of uh, this process. Back then, what kind of uh, challenges you faced, especially when advocating for the expansion of the pharmacist role? Yes, Hamza. Well, there are... Um uh, in all industries, there are very strong advocates, um, and the medical advocacy in Australia is very strong, and they resisted the notion of pharmacists providing vaccinations very, very, very strongly and very vocally. But the irony of all that was that um, most um, doctors' surgeries, or a lot of doctors' surgeries, the doctors actually didn't give the vaccinations. Patients would wait for an hour or two hours in a waiting room full of sick people to then be called to have a, a flu vaccine or a vaccination to be administered by a nurse. Um, and the chance was that if you weren't sick when you went into the doctor's surgery, there was a good chance you would be when you left because you're surrounded by uh, a room full of very sick people. 
So the opportunity to have a vaccination at the patient's convenience um, in a very professional environment, um, such as a professional services room established within a community pharmacy, without having to wait for an hour or two hours um, surrounded by sick people, uh, seemed to be an ideal option given uh, the lack of capacity that was available in general practice um, and other vaccination services. So there was pushback, but for a lot of doctors, when it happened, they, I think, were actually quite relieved that some load had been taken off their plate um, and community pharmacy was able to fill that breach and fill that gap. And they did it so successfully that now most of the national immunisation program vaccines are administered and available through community pharmacy. So it has been a resounding success. It has improved accessibility to vaccines uh, markedly in Australia and has improved vaccination coverage markedly. And it also has given the opportunity for pharmacists who know their patients very well to be able to discuss things such as vaccine hesitancy and a lot of the misnomers and um, uh, misbeliefs that uh, tend to be around vaccination. So there have been a number of other advantages in terms of the established relationship between the community pharmacist and their patients. So the the whole vaccination journey has been, it's been arduous. It has, uh, we have uh, fought um, uphill for a long way, but once we achieved the the successful trials, um, it was then um, a rapid transition to implementation um, and uh, what was seen widely by the patients as a very, very successful and convenient program. So this certainly came with numerous advantages, as you highlighted, for patients, for doctors, for the health system in general. But as you were advocating for change, um, resistance to such a change was unavoidable. And this process, as you mentioned earlier, was an arduous journey. So for those people who want to advocate for the expansion of the pharmacist's role, for a better future of pharmacy and lead such a change, whether that be in Australia or other countries. What do you consider are necessary qualities for these people to have in order to succeed in this journey, to perform at their best? And also what kind of tips uh, you may have for them, particularly as we're now seeing the expanded the role of pharmacists, mainly in North American countries, in the UK, in Australia, but it's still not the case in so many other countries. So for, for those people who are inspired by your journey in leading this change, what would you say to them? Um, thanks, Hamza. Um, look, my advice in the first instance would be to take small steps. Uh, you need to prove the concept before you can deliver the program. And that was uh, what happened very successfully in Australia, where um, a small-scale trial was initiated with the support of the health ministry, um, and then it was evaluated, it was implemented, evaluated, um, and then on the basis of that evaluation, which was extremely positive, there was then broader implementation across the, um, uh, the various jurisdictions. But it's, it's always better, I think, rather than 
trying to knock the door down and say we want every pharmacist in Australia to vaccinate by the end of this year. Uh, I think it's better to to say to the policymakers, we're prepared to trial this and we'll do it on a small scale. Uh, we'll provide whatever the required training is for our uh, pharmacists to be competent at whatever the skill that's required. And vaccination is a skill. And once you've done it a number of times, you get very, very good at it. So pharmacists have to be prepared to upgrade their clinical knowledge if required and upgrade their skills so that they can deliver it in a manner which produces no harm to the patient. The other thing, Hamza, is that it should also always be delivered in a professional environment. If pharmacies wish to deliver professional services within their community pharmacies, I would advise them to provide those services in a fully functional professional services room. It can't be done to the side of the dispensary or in the office where other work's being done. You need to provide the patient with an experience which is as good or better than, than that uh, which they might receive if they were at their general practitioner's um, practice. So we have, to, we have to do it as well or better um, than um, uh, anyone else who's providing the service. We have to prove the concept and then you'll have a case after the evaluation of the trial to go forward with a broader implementation. But it, um, uh, it's, it's worked that way, certainly in North America and, as, and in Australia. And for those countries where they are looking to try and implement vaccination services, uh, my key advice is to certainly uh, you need to uh, find a champion within the bureaucracy. So uh, whether that's um, a... Uh, a senior bureaucrat or a uh, parliamentarian who sees the real value and potential of the community pharmacist. And then you need to start advocating for a small trial uh, to set the platform for evaluation and broader implementation. And, and that strategy I know has worked so very well in a number of countries. That's really insightful. Thank you, Paul, for these additional insights. Now, since you are leading the FIP, the International Pharmaceutical Federation. I find this very relevant to discuss the evolution of the pharmacist's role, especially within the current context of uh, the accelerating pace of innovations, AI, and also regulation. Now we've seen we've seen the widespread and adoption of AI at an unprecedented rate, especially in the past two years, and it's getting more and more involved by the healthcare uh, professionals and the pharmacy workforce. It's no secret that the artificial intelligence will have its own place within pharmacy in the future. Nonetheless, dealing with patient uh, health outcomes and patient data is a critical aspect that may affect the patient's health, whether for the better or the worse. Now, how do you see this evolution from a regulatory point of view, especially since we don't have strong regulation of artificial intelligence within the healthcare framework. Uh, thanks, Hamza. That's a, a very interesting concept, the whole notion of artificial intelligence, how it will be employed um, in healthcare, and how it will be harnessed in healthcare. Um, and uh, it's very early days in the application of artificial intelligence. But I think what is clear 
is that going forward, it will facilitate enormous change within our profession. Uh, That change will mean that there will need to be regulation. um, So there will need to be guidelines around how it's used, um, how uh, the data that is collected is managed, uh, patients' privacy, how that's managed. Um, But the potential for AI to facilitate change and to facilitate perhaps more timely delivery um, of healthcare, particularly with respect to um, disease state management, both in a hospital environment, uh, within clinics and within the community environment, um, I think we've only just scratched the surface there. It has come with a rush and everyone is grappling with the notion of how do we manage this? What are its limits? Um, so there is, there is a little, um, a little time before it's embedded within things we do. But I think the opportunity, Hamza, is that, um, is that we embrace AI, but we do it not with a view and people say it will replace all these people and all these things. But I think rather we look at AI as a facilitator and an enabler so that it may actually give the professionals, the pharmacists, more time, more information, more data. And the challenge for pharmacy is that with all the data that can be assembled, the logical gatekeeper for that data may well be the pharmacist because they are the first line of primary health care and they're the ones who have the, normally the first contact with the patient. All of the wearable devices, personal wearable devices, will deliver enormous amounts of patient information. That information will be used to change a dosage regimes, to change therapies. And how that information is managed is a skill set that uh, pharmacists will need to develop. So I think the, um, the whole AI environment is in front of us. Um, I think its potential is yet to be realised, uh, but I think we need to proceed with absolute caution and again, proceed uh, with small steps uh, so that that implementation and the outcomes that it can generate are managed and are always in the patient's best interests. Perfect. So you mentioned that skill set needs to be developed, especially by pharmacists, considering uh, AI is still at its early days. And not, not a lot of pharmacists are really familiar with the concept, with its uh, case uses, with its limitations. So where, where do you see the adoption of uh, capacity building in pharmacy? Should pharmacists be very, very engaged in a uh, continuous educational program dealing with AI in healthcare? Or uh, do you see this as a vital subject that needs to be incorporated within the pharmacy curriculums? to make it relevant with the needs of the coming years? Yep, I, I certainly think that um, AI will be embedded within um, university curricula because the graduates that are leaving university need to have those skills and university is probably the best place for them to be exposed to that technology uh, and, and the capacity that it can bring to pharmacy. For pharmacists already working in the pharmacy landscape, the changes will come, I think, through the workplace uh, as uh, AI enables technology and enables um, closer monitoring of patients. um, And that data is then accessible to be analysed and to then 
using that data to inform decisions that are made about patients' therapies, whether it be continuing therapies, whether it be dosage changes. And the opportunity here also, Hermsa, is for there to be significantly more interprofessional collaboration so that there will be continuing dialogue and exchange between the patient's pharmacist and the patient's doctor. Um, and AI will also, I believe, facilitate um, that collaboration so that the exchange of information will be much, uh, much easier um, than it is at the moment. Certainly in Australia, we have a, uh, we have a tiered health information, patient information system where no level of health provision talks to another. So it's very difficult to access full patient data. Some countries have much more developed health records than we do, uh, and that's something in Australia which um, is, has certainly been looked at and is a challenge for us into the future. But it, um, yes, pharmacists will have to, um, we, you hear um, speak of uh, lifelong learning, uh, and this is a typical example of how pharmacists will continually have to upskill themselves so that they are contemporary in every sense in their practice of pharmacy. That's, that's enlightening, Paul. We've seen the evolution of the pharmacist role take uh, various paths. Back in the 20th century, there has been the role of the apothecary where pharmacists were involved with the compounding of medication at their pharmacy. Then the introduction of clinical pharmacy, and now it's more of the patient uh, care and pharmaceutical care. With this early adoption of artificial intelligence with the accelerating pace of uh, digital innovations, where, in your opinion, do you see the pharmacists' role going in the next 10 years? Um, well, I think we will, well, while our core, our core competency of the pharmacists will always be as medicine experts and as dispensers of medicines, but I do think that AI will play a role in further automating the um, supply of medicines and pharmacists, I think, need to broaden their practice in terms of delivery of more detailed pharmaceutical care. And that uh, may mean um, disease state management, uh, which may be provided through clinics in their pharmacy. It might be uh, pharmacists who might take a particular interest in uh, particular non-communicable diseases such as cardiovascular disease or diabetes, or cancer, or respiratory disease. But um, I think that the ability for the pharmacists as medicine experts and as primary healthcare and pharmaceutical care providers, um, there is enormous opportunity uh, for pharmacy to move forward in disease state management to help the patient rather than just supplying the patient with their medications, but to help them on their disease journey, so their disease management is far more effective, which enables a much better quality of life. It enables uh, much better adherence uh, by the patient to their medication regime. It can minimise medicine misadventure and hospital readmissions. So there is all positives along this journey of pharmaceutical care, and that will be enabled in a number of ways, I think, by um, artificial intelligence. Uh, but it will also transition pharmacy, and this is happening very quickly with expansion of um, scope of practice. It will transition us from purely suppliers of medicines to suppliers of medicines 
and providers of full-scale pharmaceutical care. Well, thank you, Paul, for these additional insights. Now, certainly, uh, this evolution may come also at the expense of certain rules. So do, do you see there are some rules that are going to be less and less needed and fading away in the coming years? I'm, I'm not sure that that's the case, Hamza, because most pharmacy marketplaces um, are experiencing severe um, workforce issues. Most areas have shortages of pharmacists, so there is um, uh, there is talk uh, in a lot of pharmacy marketplaces where they are utilising pharmacy technicians. And that is not the case in a number of countries, but uh, by and large, there are um, uh, dramatic shortages worldwide in the health workforce, and pharmacy, as part of that health workforce, is experiencing those shortages. So it may not be elimination of roles, it may be a realignment so that the skill set that is, pro- that is um, resides within the pharmacist may well be better utilised doing other tasks such as delivery of pharmaceutical care rather than simply supply of medicines. So I think that um, uh, it, it won't be a case of pharmacists being unemployed uh, because jobs are at risk, but rather those tasks that can be automated, I think will be further automated um, and that will free up capacity within the pharmacy workforce to better deliver pharmaceutical care and professional services. Well, that's uh, another important point you just cited, the workforce shortage and the need for pharmacists is always here. Nonetheless, there are certain tasks that may get automated which will lead to a realignment of pharmacist skill set. However, with the ongoing deployment and adoption of artificial intelligence and the continuous spread of pharmaceutical care, do you see any evolutions of the job market demand and in which direction? Well, I think the evolution will happen um, in um, a manner which sees us from relying solely on supply of pharmaceuticals to being primary healthcare providers and pharmaceutical care providers. Um, I think we, we always need to be mindful that our universities train our young pharmacy graduates um, uh, with a very, very sophisticated skill set. And I think the challenge for every pharmacy marketplace is to provide as many opportunities as possible for those graduates to exercise those skills. And I would suggest that if I spend my career as a young pharmacist simply um, processing prescriptions um, and putting labels on bottles and handing prescriptions and talking to people, that's a very valuable role. But I would suggest that it's a gross underutilization of the skills of young pharmacists. And I think young pharmacists will demand more and the industry needs to be able to provide more for them. And that's where expansion of scope of practice, I mean, ideally, um, and I think the time is not too far away in marketplaces like the UK, North America, in Australia, uh, where you will walk into a community pharmacy and you will see a health and beauty products, you will see medicines, you will see prescriptions being dispensed, 
and you will see what will amount to virtually a primary healthcare clinic uh, where if you have minor ailments, you can be treated. If you require vaccinations, you can be treated and you can be vaccinated. Uh, if you require medication reviews, they can be pro provided on site so that it will not simply be a uh, place where medicines are dispensed, but it will be a health hub where minor ailments could be treated instead of going to the general practitioner who in many places has limited capacity or to the emergency department at the local hospital, which in many instances uh, is overloaded and can't cope. So I think there is great opportunity for young pharmacists going forward. I think what we need to do is to embrace the notion of providing those opportunities by way of professional service delivery. And then the, the challenge there is to find a remuneration model that will sustain it. Some governments will support that and patients will happily pay for provision of those services. So it's, they're the challenges, but I think the opportunities far outweigh the challenges. I love that. Um, and on the subject of pharmacy curriculums, what's your take on the current state of pharmacy curriculums? Um, there relevance with the job market needs, with the, uh, with the advancements, with the expanded role of pharmacists, especially since we see it's, it's not homogenous across regions with certain uh, advancements as always in North American countries, in the UK, in Australia. Um, and how can we bridge this gap and advocate for the improvement of pharmacy curriculums uh, across the world, especially since you are involved with the FIP? Uh, that we we believe uh, could play a major role in uh, accelerating this um, this improvement. Yes, that's a, that's a great opportunity. I think Hamza, and it's certainly an area that FIP has taken uh, real interest in. Firstly, current curricula at the universities. I think in in developed countries, uh, certainly they're moving very quickly. Um, uh, many countries have a farm D. Uh, so you'll, you'll um, uh, graduate as a doctor of pharmacy. In the UK, in, by 1926, um, every pharmacy graduate uh, will be an independent prescriber. So they will graduate and then be able to independently prescribe against a list of minor ailments um, and prescribe against a limited formulary uh, to provide um, uh, primary healthcare services from the day they, are, they graduate. That's a huge step forward. And I would hope that uh, in the short term, and I think it will happen, uh, most universities uh, will provide um, that um, that qualification as part of their uh, undergraduate um, courses. Uh, in less developed countries, and FIP, we are always mindful, is that FIP um, is a global organisation that represents over 4 million pharmacists worldwide but pharmacists in every discipline, whether that be pharmacy practice, pharmaceutical science, or pharmaceutical education. And one of the, uh, the very uh, great outcomes that FIP has achieved through FIPED, which is our um, education section within um, FIP, they have a program called UniTwin, where um, they match or twin a university from a more developed country uh, like North America, to universities within North Africa, there's been a very successful program where they have twinned with the university in North Africa and have um, actually shared resources to improve 
learning uh, and, uh, and graduate opportunities within a less developed country. So FIP is very conscious of the power of education uh, and how education is a huge enabler uh, to uh, not only socioeconomic growth, but also lifting communities uh, uh, from impoverished states uh, to more developed states. Uh, so um, education is a key part of FIP's work. We see the notion of lifelong learning as most important. At FIP, we have a gathering of uh, universities. It's called our Academic Institution Membership, uh, and they're a very important advisory group within FIP, um, and they inform uh, FIP Ed, um, particularly with respect to the opportunities uh, for the uh, UniTwin program. And that has been so successful within um, uh, the African region that that is expanding next year into the, um, uh, there'll be a separate um, program set up in the Mediterranean region. So it, um, education is a key part. Um, we say at FIP that um, uh, without an educated workforce, you have no workforce. Um, and the key to a capable, functional um, and um, healthy workforce um, is an educated workforce. Absolutely. So ac academia has certainly its vital role. It's irreplaceable. And we need to advocate for the improvement of these curriculums and their coherence with the job market needs, with the evolution of pharmacist role. But since you also mentioned the lifelong learning, especially for pharmacy graduates, for the workforce, uh, those who may not have the opportunity to pursue these uh, the improvements of their skills and the, the learning through university or classical academic curriculums. Where do you see the place of online education in, uh, in lifelong learning and continuous professional development? And especially considering that without falling within a regulated framework, we may get um, some het heterogeneous programs and as 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 we as we want to make sure uh, pharmacists get quality education, are there key elements for uh, uh, for relevant uh, online educational program to have a certain uh, coherent quality? Certainly, um, education is the key, Hamza, um, and different um, countries have different levels and capacity of education. Uh, and that's always going to be a challenge. Uh, one thing that I'm very proud to be able to say is that FIP uh, in the COVID era uh, dramatically re-engineered uh, a lot of our programs so that we could uh, stay in contact and provide education services to um, pharmacists around the world uh, by providing a, uh, a platform of webinars uh, which have been extremely successful um, and extremely well uh, supported. In the last year, we've, um, we have provided, um, a well in excess of 120 or 130 webinars. Uh, the year before, it was as many as that. And these give, um, access free of charge to pharmacists around the world. And particularly in emerging and developing countries, uh, this is such a vital resource. Uh, because it is giving them access to um, some of uh, the leading academics within fields who are presenting uh, on behalf of FIP 
Uh, for instance, uh, FYP undertook a practice transformation program uh, in the last um, 12 months, and that provides toolkits and resources for member organisations to assist implementation of clinically focused services in pharmacy practice. They, um, they uh, focus on non-communicable diseases such as diabetes, cardiovascular disease, respiratory disease, mental health and cancer. Uh, now, these toolkits and these webinars have been of enormous assistance for um, member organisations and pharmacists trying to implement programs within their own marketplaces. So FIP acknowledges and recognises the importance of provision of continued education. We don't do it to, um, to a standard which is prescribed by universities, but we do it on the basis of um, quality information provided by subject matter experts and on subjects which are in high demand within various marketplaces. And those programs and those webinars have been phenomenally uh, successful in the way that they have um, delivered uh, to um, a very large market of pharmacists. Perfect. That's, uh, that's, that's certainly been a great project that FIP has catalyzed, especially in accessible <laughs> online education worldwide. That helps in bridging the gaps of education between the uh, developed countries in the developing countries. Now, this, this has been a, an insightful conversation. Thank you very much, Paul. And uh, since th this podcast also, I wanted to come with practical advice for, for our listeners, especially the, the new generation of pharmacists, the students and recent graduates. Um, I, I want to ask you about your favorite pieces of advice that you have for our audience. Now, in, in light of your years of experience in advocacy as a community pharmacy owner, as a, a catalyst for change and the improvement of pharmacy practice in Australia, what advice would you, would you give your, your younger self? Um, well, looking back, my younger self, and that was a while ago now, but um, it's always good to to look back and and I uh, and I think um, as you have experience uh, within a profession, you should look to share that and uh, and mentor younger pharmacists wherever you can. Um, I think the first thing I would say is that pharmacy is generally a very regulated profession, um, and it's regulated because we are not dealing with ordinary items of commerce; we are dealing with very potent medications. Uh, that can cause harm and should be uh, treated, um, you know, with absolute respect. So that um, in most countries there are regulations uh, regarding the practice of pharmacy, always adhere to the regulations and the legislation um, that um, is structured around our profession. Um, too many pharmacists find themselves in trouble because they don't understand the regulations and the legislation. So the first key a bit of information for younger pharmacists um, is know the regulations, know the legislation and follow them. The second piece of, um, of uh, advice I would give young pharmacists is strive to be the very best pharmacist you can be. Um, as I said earlier, there are enormous opportunities in front of us and on the horizon uh, for pharmacists going forward. Um, I think the next five or 10 years, we'll see 
many, many changes within our profession. And the younger pharmacists will be those best skilled to take advantage of those changes. So I would challenge every younger pharmacist to be the best pharmacist they can be. Embrace the notion of scope of practice, um, expansion, seek to do more, and seek to do more in the field of pharmaceutical care. Pharmacists can make such a difference to patient outcomes. And as we're allowed to do more, we will actually make a greater difference. And the other thing that I would suggest, just as um, advice looking backwards, is encourage those around you. Um, it's always good to have a strong professional network. So uh, whether it be your cohort from university or whether it be um, a young pharmacist group within your local professional association, but always uh, maintain and try and grow a network of um, like-minded professionals around you. Uh, they will be enormous support for you going forward. Um, and there is nothing better than having um, someone that you can talk to, particularly um, if there is um, issues that you need to discuss. So I think um, they're probably the, the three things. But, um, and, and of course, um, you know, um, I've derived enormous pleasure from the practice of pharmacy. I think it's a, um, uh, we're, very, we're very blessed to be pharmacists. Um, and I think it's, uh, it's, it still remains um, and will be um, uh, uh, a profession full of opportunity. And just position yourself to take the best professional um, opportunities you can and to practice at the highest possible levels you can. And you will derive enormous satisfaction seeing the, uh, seeing the outcomes and the health outcomes that you will deliver for your patients. I love that. I love that, Paul. Thank you very much for this advice. Uh, now, if we have those who are willing to embark on a journey that's similar to yours within uh, pharmacy advocacy, within uh, pharmacy uh, organizations, and want to drive uh, such a positive change, whether that be locally or globally, uh, what would you say to them, uh, some uh, precious pieces of advice? Uh, I think, Hamza, the best piece of advice um, I ever got, and I saw it in action, was that if you are dealing with policymakers or you are dealing with um, politicians um, and you are trying to advocate for your profession, it is always best if those people you are talking to understand what you do. And um, the best strategy that I saw in that regard was that um, every pharmacist should ask their local politician to come and have two or three hours in your shoes, in your pharmacy, so they see all the things that you do. They may not be aware that you provide uh, medicine packs for patients. They may not be aware um, that um, you have uh, a stage supply for patients or you have a, an opioid replacement therapy program or that you have medicine review programs or that you provide a full range of vaccines. But it's one thing to tell people what you do, but if you can, if you can ask them to come to your pharmacy so they can see what you can do, then all of a sudden there's a good chance that they will become strong advocates for what you're doing. Um, and that was probably the most effective piece of strategy in advocacy um, that um, I saw happen. And not only did it work, but the people who you invite to be in your shoes for a few hours um, got um, a much clearer understanding of, um, of who you are and what you do and they appreciate that very much. So that's that's probably uh, the key piece of advice. And always treat those people that you are dealing with at various levels of government, 
uh, at, at various levels within um, health bureaucracies, always treat them with respect. That's uh, that's a very very wise advice, Paul. And I believe this has has been a catalyst in uh, in your years in advocating for the expansion of pharmacist role. And this will certainly be helpful for so many of us, not only with dealing with policymakers, but with uh, other people outside of our profession that we will need to deal with. Um, it's uh, it's certainly a gem uh, when it comes to dealing with people. Now, uh, the last one, since we, we all know the pharmacy has has a lot of opportunities, it has a lot of career options, and in light of these opportunities, there are uh, some from the new generation or the recent graduates who may feel uh, lost or lack direction on which career path is the one that they will uh, pursue or the one that's most in line with their aspirations. Now, what's, what's your message for those to help them in this process to hopefully pursue uh, the most suitable career option to them? Well, there is, there is significant opportunity within the field of pharmacy, um, whether that be pharmaceutical science, pharmacy practice, or pharmacy education. Um, some people um, will feel more comfortable in, the, in, in academia, um, and they may progress studies and, um, and proceed with an academic career. Um, my advice would be that um, if you're not sure where uh, you think you would best fit within the pharmacy or the pharmaceutical landscape, whether that be in a community pharmacy or working with a drug firm or working in industrial pharmacy, just be prepared to try a number of options uh, because um, it may not be your first choice may not be the choice that you engage for life. But be prepared. Um, if you feel that um, you'd like the challenge of a purely clinical experience, then hospital pharmacy may be where you prefer to be. But um, always keep your options open um, and always be prepared um, to try something else if what you try at first um, isn't um, exactly as you imagined it or wasn't as satisfying as you want it to be. But there are there are multiple options within the profession of pharmacy. and don't be discouraged if your first choice may not be the one that you think will, um, uh, which will sustain you for your career, because there are many other choices. Talk to your friends, um, talk to them about their experiences. That's where that network of young pharmacists becomes so important. Uh, but the opportunities will increase dramatically, I believe, in pharmacy in the coming decade, uh, so that um, there will be there will be more. Um, uh, more varied opportunity. Um, I I look um, optimistically to the day when um, there will be opportunities for a purely professional services pharmacist to be employed within every pharmacist, and they are fully engaged providing primary healthcare services within that pharmacy. So there is some. Um, it is a time of great opportunity. Keep your options open, and don't be afraid to uh, to change or to try another discipline within pharmacy if you don't feel satisfied. Thank you. Thank you very much, Paul, for um, this enlightening conversation. I'm really grateful to have you uh, in this podcast and to hear in all of your experiences. I hope this will be very useful to our listeners, especially the new generation of pharmacists. And we hope we'll see a better change for pharmacy profession and advancement worldwide.
My pleasure, Hamza, and all the very best to your listeners. Thank you for listening. I hope this interview has opened up new perspectives for you. If you don't want to miss another mind-opening interview, make sure you subscribe. And I also appreciate it if you let your pharma friends know. Stay tuned and take care.